Americans. This is the Urbane Cowboys podcast with Josiah Neely of R Street Institute and Doug McCullough of Lone Star Policy Institute. Good day. Howdy, y'all. Welcome to the Urbane Cowboys podcast. I'm Josiah Neely with the R Street Institute. And I'm Doug McCullough with the Lone Star Policy Institute. Today, we are joined by Rod Dreher, who is a writer with the American Conservative and the author of uh, five books. I was going to say four books, but I just thought of the fifth one. His most recent book, which we're going to be talking about today, is Live Not by Lies, a Manual for Christian Dissidents. So, uh, Rod, welcome to the program. It's great to be here, Josiah and Doug. Thanks for having me on. Yes. And uh, just so people know that I'm not bluffing, uh, other than there's Live Not by Lies, The Benedict Option, How Dante Can Save Your Life, uh, Crunchy Conservatives, and then I forget the title. It's something Ruthie. uh, Yeah. uh, um, The Little Way of Ruthie Lemming. The Little Way of Ruthie. There you go. Yes. So there you go. And we could talk about, I'm sure we'll talk some of those prior books might come up in the course of the conversation. But the main point is your new book, uh, which is out, it's available uh, on Amazon, uh, other places. I listen to the audio version because I basically only do like 90% audio books now because you can do it while you're chasing around little little human beings. (laughs) (laughs) But um, why don't you just give us a a quick uh, overview of uh, of what the book's about? Well, I got the idea for the book back in 2015 when I I got a phone call one day from a physician who we have a mutual friend. And he said, listen, I feel like I have to tell some journalists this. My elderly mother lives with me and my wife, but uh, early in her life, she was born and raised in in Czechoslovakia and spent four years in a Czech prison camp as a young woman for her Catholic faith. The communists put her in a prison camp. And uh, she's saying to us now, son, the things I'm seeing happen in America remind me of when communism came to my home country. And it scared the doctor, and he wanted to tell somebody. Well, when I heard that, I thought, okay, maybe, but you know, my mother's old too and watches a lot of cable news, and she gets a little bit excited, so I better check this out. So I started talking to people uh, who had come to the West, both to the U.S. and the U.K. from the Soviet bloc, and started asking them, what do you think of what this Czech woman said? Every single one of them said, yes, absolutely, it's happening here. And if you talk to them long enough, they would get really angry at Americans for not taking them seriously. Well, what are they seeing? They're seeing uh, the emergence of something that they consider to be quasi-totalitarian. I call it soft totalitarian. It's the emergence of a hard ideology, a left-wing ideology, usually centered around identity politics. It is practiced by elites. It has taken over elite institutions. You never know what you can and can't say from day to day. If you say the wrong thing, they will come after you professionally and personally. You can lose everything. And um, it it is sub- supplanting uh, liberalism, you know, classical liberalism. And uh, it's amazing when you start talking to them and start looking into what totalitarianism was like uh, to see things through their eyes. The key thing, though, is that in all totalitarian systems, 
what distinguishes them and makes them totalitarian is that politics invades all aspects of life. There's no aspect of life untouched by politics. Well, that's what the social justice warriors are and the, the woke are doing to our lives. Now, we can't even go to the football game without politics being there. So what I did with the book is I, I tried to explain where this is coming from, you know, what they're seeing, but I also traveled to Russia and to the former Soviet bloc to talk to people over there, Christians, who had been dissidents under communism, to try to find out from them what practical advice would they have for we who are living in the West and how to resist this thing. The title of the book, Live Not By Lies, comes from an essay Alexander Solzhenitsyn wrote in 1974 on the eve of his being expelled from the Soviet Union, in which he told his followers, listen, we can't overthrow this totalitarian government, but one thing we can do is refuse to pretend like that we believe anything they say. So he advised his followers to live not by lies. That was the title of his essay, which is to say, whenever you hear a lie, stand up and walk out. Do not let anybody think that you are part of it. And uh, it's going to require a lot of personal courage, said Solzhenitsyn, but if we're going to be real men of integrity, we have to stand up like this. Václav Havel said the same thing, by the way, three years later in a famous essay called The Power of the Powerless, where he called on people to, quote, live in truth in Czechoslovakia. Anyway, I think that that's what we're called to do here in this society. Now, we're not dealing with gulags and we're not dealing with secret police, but we are dealing with an increasingly totalitarian system that has taken over the elites and elite institutions. And one way, the most important way we can stand up to it right now is to, just to refuse to live by the lies that they expect us to bend the knee to. So what are the lies? Uh, obviously, when Solzhenitsyn was writing about communism, uh, the, the lies there had to do with the communist system being for you know the working man, for equality and all of that. I mean, how would you sum up the equivalent lies of the current Western scene? Well, the lies we have to deal with, they all come from identity politics. And uh, they this, this guy, James Lindsay, some of your listeners might know him. He's a, a secular atheist. Uh, I think he's a left-wing academic who has been really, really good at analyzing um, wokeness and breaking it down and describing it as a pseudo-religion. I think here's one example of, of a lie came just this morning. Uh, as you and I are talking, I was this morning on Morning Joe on MSNBC, and they had me paired with a professor, a black professor from Princeton, who completely rejected the thesis of my book. He said, who are these woke people? I've never even heard of them. You know, this is only uh, uh, angry white supremacists complaining that they can't say nasty things about people like me, meaning African-Americans. Well, that right there is an example of the lies, some of the lies that we have to deal with. I brought up in that interview that Joshua Katz, a classics professor at Princeton this summer, a white guy and a liberal, I should add, when he published something criticizing uh, a woke attempt from the faculty to racialize everything there, they came after him hammer and tongs and accused him of aiding and abetting white supremacy and the usual thing. He's a guy who stood up against lies, Joshua Katz, and he still hung on, thank God, because he had a lot of support from outside the university. But this is just one of the things that we have to constantly uh, constantly agree to, that America is systemically racist. And any time 
uh, one is accused of racism or homophobia or transphobia or any kind of bigotry, one has to accept that it, of course, it's true, and we have to do better. This sort of uh, this sort of ideology infects so many uh, so many elite circles. Just just this week, again, as we're talking, I saw that the Kappa Delta, the college sorority that Amy Coney Barrett was part of. Uh, when she was nominated, they put out this anodyne, kind of cringy, apologetic uh, just affirmation that one of their members had accomplished something important. They faced all kinds of blowback from younger liberals within the sorority, and they issued this pathetic, groveling apology for ever having even noticed Amy Coney Barrett. Well, again, this is a lie, and this is the kind of lie, though, that everybody is expected to accept if you want to be part of elite organizations. And I don't mean just universities. I'm talking about newsrooms. I'm talking about uh, sororities. I'm talking about corporate America. It is the sort of thing where uh, once you start to think about it, there. I mean, we could probably spend the entire uh, hour giving examples of, uh, you know, either things that were okay to say, yesterday and are now offensive um i I guess there was a during the that you mentioned the amy comey barrett uh during the hearings she used the term uh sexual preference sexual preference yeah yeah and um which is which is people said well that's that's uh that's offensive as it turned out uh is a term that Joe Biden has used, a lot of Democrats have used, including uh, very recently, The Advocate magazine last month was using it. Yeah, two weeks ago, it was in the New York Times. This is just something they made up. But but see, Josiah, this is part of the way that soft totalitarianism works. You never know who's setting the rules, where these rules are coming from, and you never know if what you're saying today is going to be permitted tomorrow. Everything is going to change uh, on a dime, and you're going to pay a price for it, or you could pay a price for it. This is what these people who lived through communism said it was exactly like over there. You had to constantly be on alert to try to pick up the slightest change in the cultural um, the culture, the structure of the culture. Otherwise, you could find yourself jobless or even in prison. The the other parallel that just kind of jumps out to me. You know, in addition to you know people having to to watch what they say and standards seeming to set change is kind of like the that when when someone uh, does mess up, the abject groveling nature of some of the apologies. I assume that you saw this was a couple weeks ago. There was an incident where a professor wrote a an op ed or something about why there should be football. Yes. Football. Yeah. And a week later, wrote a follow-up saying, I've realized that uh, this was horribly insensitive and racist to say that we need to have football. Uh, I, I don't need to necessarily go into the reasons for why that's supposed to be racist. But the strange thing about the, you know, the nature of it is it's the sort of thing that you would have expected it read like something out of one of the old, you know, show trials, right? Yeah, darkness at noon. That's exactly what it was. That or the the communist struggle, the Chinese communist struggle sessions. I mean, it's it's just pathetic, and, and yet it's happening here. And this is one thing too that we have to keep in mind from Solzhenitsyn. He warned in the preface to a, a later edition of the Gulag Archipelago. 
He said one of the biggest mistakes that anybody can make is to read the Gulag Archipelago and what happened to Russia and to think, wow, that can never happen here. It can happen here. It can happen anywhere in the world. But I think part of our problem too, Josiah, is we we uh, think that totalitarianism is something that is going to mimic, always mimic Stalinism or Maoism. It's going to mimic George Orwell's 1984, where the state... Uh, maintain control of the people by inflicting pain and terror. It's not going to be like that. I, I call it soft totalitarianism. Uh, our friend James Polos also calls it the pink police state. I think rather the, the regime that's emerging, and it's not going to be simply the state, it's also corporations, big tech, uh, universities, and other institutions of civil society, they're going to manufacture consent by manipulating status, access to consumer goods, and the economy. And I think the primary way that they will do this is going to be through an American version of China's social credit system. Yeah. So maybe uh, explain a little bit what the social credit system is in China. Sure. In China, uh, they have a, a very advanced surveillance system there. And not only do they have cameras on every street corner with facial recognition, artificial intelligence software, but they also constantly monitor the activity everybody does on their smartphones and online. And all this data go into a, a central computer. I'm, I'm oversimplifying here, but there's basically a central database where they run all the data through algorithms to see what each single citizen is doing. Now, every citizen in China has what they call a social credit rating. It's like here we have a credit score that that uh, tells potential lenders what your uh, what your creditworthiness would be. Well, in China, they do that for your personal credibility. Uh, if you do things and the system records you doing things that the government considers to be socially positive, like downloading the speeches of Xi Jinping or things like that, well, then you get a higher rating. If you do things the government doesn't like, like go to church then or hang out with dissidents or people it considers dodgy, people who have low social credit scores, well, that's going to lower your score too. The higher the score you have, the more access you have to the best jobs, your kids can get to the best universities and so on. The lower the score you have, you know, the fewer privileges you have. It can even be, in theory, the, the kind of thing where they could cut you off entirely from participating in the economy because China is close to becoming a fully cashless society. In other words, and this is this has a certain resonance depending on what part of our country you grew up in, but they can make it impossible for you to buy or sell if they want to uh, by cutting you out of the system. When I was growing up, there, there was a lot of talk about how you're going to have to have a, a microchip. Right, right. Mark of the beast. Stay right. with me. But uh, but now China can actually do this if they want to. Now, I, th I think that that sort of thing, we're in danger of it coming here. Uh, I don't think it'll be completely replicated because I don't think the state's going to be involved. But already, uh, major companies and tech companies like Google, Amazon, Facebook, Twitter, all of them collect massive amounts of data from our smartphones, from our behavior uh, online and they do this completely legally you know we all we all when we sign up for a new app or something you know you if you don't read the fine print you might not know that you're you're giving them access to all this data and it's all being gathered now there's a, a really interesting film on Netflix right now called the social dilemma that talks a lot about this and about how all this data that we're giving to 
uh, these corporations can be used to manipulate us. When I was in Prague a couple of years ago doing some research for Live Not By Lies, I found myself sitting in the apartment of a woman, Camilla Bendova. She's an older woman now. She and her husband, Václav, her late husband, had been part of Václav Havel's inner circle of dissidents. And I noticed that she had, Camilla, on her on her table, a dumb phone. And I said, you don't have a smartphone? She goes, no, nobody in my family, none of her adult children, will use a smartphone. I said, why not? She goes, well, for the collecting of data. We don't want them getting our data. She said, I don't understand this about Americans, about, about young people today. Why everybody is so willing to hand over their data to these corporations. She said, if you've been through what we've been through here in this country under communism, you know in your bones that there's no such thing as the innocent collection of data. And Camilla pointed on the wall, Josiah, to uh, scars on the wall of the paint where she and her late husband had ripped out the wires that the secret police had put in their home to bug every room of their home. She said that so many people today think that, oh, I'm not doing anything wrong. There's nothing wrong with giving this data over. She said, again, there's nothing innocent about any of this. If you give them the data, they will one day use it against you because they're storing it. Yeah, I I do get tend to get creeped out by Alexa or those sorts of things that you ha- people have in their houses that are just always listening for when they give them a command or something. Right. Well, well, think about it like this. You're completely right to be creeped out by it. And most of us don't even put two and two together. What if somebody from the government, from the U.S. government, showed up at our front door with an Alexa device and said, uh, we have an order to put this in your house and you know, let us in. Here's the warrant. We're going to install it. And you're going to be happy with that. It's going to be listening into what you have to say. It's going to make your lives easier in some ways uh, for consumer convenience. But, you know, it's mandated by law. Well, we would know exactly what that is. But if it's sold to us as consumer convenience, oh, we'll we'll pay them for it. There's even a technology, and I write about this in the book, this technology they've developed where uh, smart TVs will be able to read the faces using facial recognition software, read the faces of the people watching the TV, whether it's an ad or a program, and be able to tell when a particular set of, of, of images and, and words cause particular emotional reactions in the viewer. And it sends that data back, as all smart devices do, to the manufacturer. Well, I mean, just think about that. This is straight out of 1984, the telescreens that the state put in everybody's house to watch them and monitor them at all times. I mean, it's it's nuts, but this is what we're accepting into our houses for the sake of having the best technology because we're Americans and technology is always good. Yeah. So I think this brings up an interesting point, um, which is if I think about, you know, how is it that some of these trends are possible in a country where, you know, unlike the Soviet union, we have real elections. You can vote for different candidates. Uh, We have a, First Amendment, civil liberties, protections, uh, they're not always uh, perfectly abided by, but, uh, you know, there are guaranteed constitutional freedoms. And it seems as if what I, you know, I don't think this is part of some grand conspiracy or anything, but uh, to me, it seems like folks have figured out 
how to do an end run around all of those uh, safeguards. And that is you just do it all through stuff that's not called governments. And if it's not called governments, people's uh, uh, flags go down and, you know, the protections go away and uh, it's all okay. Is that kind of kind of what you're saying? I think that's a really good insight. You know, we're so legalistic about these things. We saw just this week, um, we saw what Twitter did by suppressing the New York Post scoop about Hunter Biden and and the Ukraine. Um, I mean, it it was pretty incredible. And Twitter got a lot of blowback from that. And happily, from my point of view, the blowback included some angry letters from members of Congress, like Senator Josh Hawley, uh, demanding to know why they did this. And I think he's going to haul them before the Senate to testify. But that is an example of how a private business, Twitter, you know, it's the same as a newspaper. I think under the law, it can do what it wants to. But uh, we've come to rely on Twitter as uh, a social network that so many people use. It really operates more like the phone company than like the New York Times. And uh, so it's shocking when we see that they're willing to impose this kind of censorship. But again, when I, when I wrote about this on my blog, some of my liberal readers are like, well, it's a free country. It's a, it's a private company. Who are you to tell them that they can and can't do that? And those people might have a point. I think they do have a point, at least as our law stands right now. But this just underscores why having the cultural values of free speech and freedom of thought and uh, freedom of religion, all these First Amendment values that we associate with classical liberalism, why it's important to maintain them in the culture. Because if they're not valued in the culture and a democracy, they won't last very long. We see this now with Generation Z and some of the younger millennials. They have far less uh, respect for even or even understanding of the importance of free speech, the importance of freedom of assembly and all these sort of things that people on both the left and the right in my generation, I'm 53, took for granted. But we're not going to if we don't train the next generation to genuinely value these things, they're not going to exist. And, And I'll tell you something along those lines. Um, it's so important that we pay attention to what's happening in elite circles. You know, on on the right, uh, we always, for many years, we've banged on about elites, elites, elites are so bad. But in doing the research for this Live Not By Lies, I came to understand why it really does matter that we pay attention to what's happening in elite conversations, both in universities and at the corporate level and in newspapers. Because uh, Czesław Miłosz, he was a a famous Polish dissident intellectual, he said in his great 1953 book, The Captive Mind, trying to explain communism, why why it was so appealing to intellectuals, he said that um, the people of Eastern Europe woke up one day unhappily to find that their entire countries were being ruled by people whose ideas were only marginal only 20, 30 years earlier. Uh, And this is because... Cultural change happens not emerging from the masses, but it almost always happens starting with elite networks. When ideas start uh, moving around elite networks and they're taken up by elites and taken up as normative, that's when things begin to move. And we're seeing this happen right now with uh, so-called anti-racism, an Orwellian term if there ever was one, uh, gender ideology and that sort of thing. If it's if it's uh, held by the elites to be true, eventually they will impress this on the 
passive masses. So uh, looking at the, the book, the, the subtitle is A Manual for Christian Dissidents. And, and I guess I want to ask about that. And, and maybe I'm curious to sort of hear you put that in context of your other books. The ones that I'm most familiar with would be Crunchy Cons and The Benedict Option. Sort of talk about that idea of being a Christian dissident. Probably a lot of our listeners have an idea of of what the Benedict Option concept was. So I guess maybe talk about it in that context. Now, thanks for the question. And I, I should say that I, I've been really gratified to hear from uh, secular people like Barry Weiss, she's on the left, secular left, Heather Hying, same thing, who say they really appreciate the book because they're not Christians, but they are dissidents from wokeness. And they find a lot to like in this book, which makes me really happy because we need allies wherever we can find them. But I wrote this as a Christian for fellow Christians. Um, the, all the people I talked to in the former Soviet Union and the former and the Soviet bloc, they were all Christians. Because I, to me, there's nothing more important than living out my Christian faith and preserving the faith uh, for my children, my grandchildren, and all my descendants. Uh, and I see it under grave threat. I mean, I wrote this book, The Benedict Option, in 2017. Uh, trying to explain to fellow Christians why uh, Christianity is collapsing in the West. And because I don't, I don't think most of us even really understand what's happening. And I tried to take a, a, 30, 000, a view from 30,000 feet about what's happening economically, what's happening culturally, philosophically, and so forth to get us to this point and to call on Christians to recognize that if we don't push back and push back hard in our own individual lives. I'm not talking about at the legislative level, which is the way we always think about it, but rather in our own lives and communities to uh, build a more disciplined and resilient way of living out the faith, then it's going to disappear. Live Not By Lies is, you can, I didn't think of it as a sequel to the Benedict Option, but it really does operate that way. It's a narrowing of the thesis and it, it hones the thesis. It assumes that uh, that we are in a post-Christian uh, world, post-Christian society, not only a post-Christian one, but one that is in some ways post-truth, and that that into that vacuum that used to be filled by uh, by Christianity and also by the general principles of liberal democracy, which were widely shared, into that vacuum is rushing a successor ideology, uh, a pseudo religion that we call wokeness, we call it social justice, whatever. And that this, the pseudo-religion is becoming the de facto religion of the elites in this society, and they're going to use that to come against Christians. Uh, they're going to come against anybody who dissents from them, but it's going to, they're going to especially come against Christians because I think that we are the biggest obstacles to their triumph. And I, want, I wanted my fellow Christians here in this country, because we've been so pampered by the blessings of liberty and the blessings of prosperity. We don't know what it means to suffer for our faith. Uh, suffering, in fact, is central to Christianity and has been from the beginning, from the time of the early church, when martyrs were seen as especially blessed. But we've gotten very far away from that. We've gotten uh, on the left wing of Christianity in America. We've it's become more of a social gospel, social justice sort of thing. And among conservatives, a lot of us have uh, gone over to the prosperity gospel or we've we substituted politics, conservative politics for religious conviction. 
and everybody is uh, in American Christianity has uh, replaced the idea of uh, suffering uh, of a sacred suffering, you might say, an asceticism with comfort, with therapy. Uh, I, I write in the Benedict Option about this man at Notre Dame, this sociologist of religion, Christian Smith. His study has shown that the de facto religion of all Americans across churches and even across religions is what he calls moralistic therapeutic deism, meaning that people believe that God is there and he wants us to be nice and he wants us to be happy, and that's about it. That is not a religion that's capable of suffering for truth or for anything else. The the consistent message I got in Live Not By Lies from the people I interviewed, some of whom had gone to prison and been beaten and tortured for their faith, was that if American Christians are not prepared to suffer a loss of status, a loss of their friends, a loss of their job, a loss of their freedom maybe, or even the loss of their life for the sake of their faith and the truth, then they're not going to make it. So I I think there's a been a... So I think uh, a lot of people... The initial ha- reaction that they might have ha- might have to your book is that uh, it's an overreaction, right? You're painting the situation as being, uh, you know, more dire, and it, with references to uh, the Iron Curtain, and even if you're talking about soft totalitarianism as opposed to, you know, literal gulags or whatever. I did read, however, one review that thought you were being too. Um, too optimistic. <laughs> uh, too, um, I'm never accused of being too optimistic. So it was, it was striking uh, for that reason. Um, and uh, I guess, I guess the, the the way I would sum it up is that you know, if you look at the anti-communist dissidents in Eastern Europe in the 20th century as an example, yes, things were really really hard for them, but uh, they won, right? You know, they maybe they got. They went to prison. They got beaten up. Uh, some of them were murdered. Uh, they they lost social status for a while. But then, uh, you know, Václav Havel becomes the president of Czechoslovakia, and Václav uh, becomes you know uh, I think he was a senator or something. Uh, but definitely, uh, you know, they uh, th- their views, even if they didn't anticipate it at the time, their views end up prevailing uh, certainly within their own uh, lifetimes. Right. And uh, the person that this review was making is that, you know, that that's not that he thought that could easily turn out to be uh, unrealistic and you could end up with something closer to what happened to the pagans in the fourth century AD, where the new dominant, the successor religion of Christianity just kind of takes over and they just slowly bleed out. So what I mean, uh, so, so, uh, you know. I, I, I'm asking you to go perhaps against inclination, but you know what, what, what is kind of your grounds for uh, hope or optimism uh, in that regard? Or do you are, are you just convinced? You know, now that I think about it, we really are just doomed. Wow. Um, no, that's this is real. I, I I've gotten to be friends with uh, an immigrant from Czechoslovakia who lives here in America, and he thinks I am being too optimistic. He said that. Ultimately, soft totalitarianism will turn hard when they realize they can't get what they want unless they use force. Now, people from Eastern Europe are famously pessimistic, so I, I hope he's wrong, um, but he might not be. Uh, but I I just don't think that they will have to use uh, 
deadly force to compel uh, conformity because look what they do in China. I mean, again, the People's Republic of China is our model there. They have such infinite technological reach into the lives of all their citizens that uh, they can make people's lives very, very hard if they want to without ever sending the secret police around. I think that's going to be the sort of thing that happens here because they will find a way. I mean, in the same way that the Chinese, they they, they weaponize friendship to compel obedience, compel conformity, because nobody who knows you, not your family, not your friends, they won't have anything to do with you if you have a low social credit score, because just knowing you and uh, is going to be uh, bad for them. I think that could work here in the same way easily because people in this country do not want to give up their creature comforts. I hope I'm wrong about that, but there's nothing in our public ethic as it, as we've lost Christianity and as we've become uh, much more, uh, we've lost so much social trust. I just don't see that willingness to suffer for anything. I, I do fear, and this is a related, a separate but closely related question, I do fear that we are in a situation that the pagans were in the fourth century, in fourth century Rome, where you know the the old religion just doesn't seem plausible anymore, and uh, not only not plausible, but when the only thing it brings you is suffering and disdain, and uh, to be exiled from from the from the the mainstream of your society's life, a lot of people are going to walk away from it. On the other hand. Uh, we do know from history that the persecution of the early church did draw people to it. So that might happen. We know we don't know this. Um, I did hear, did talk to people over in Russia. Uh, this one man, Viktor Popkov, I quote him in the book. He talks about how he was raised in a Soviet family, no faith at all, and he was just so worn out by the emptiness everywhere of Soviet life and the lies that you had to accept just to be part of it. And what really excited him was when he began to see other young people in their 20s, early 20s, who had converted to Christianity, people like Alexander Ogorodnikov, who's also in the book, also a man from a, a communist family, but he couldn't live with the lies anymore either. He became a Christian, and boy, did he suffer. But Popkov told me that just to go into those apartments when the, where the Christians would meet, knowing that the KGB was watching, knowing that they were risking their freedom just by being together, he said that was the only place that we could ever feel free. So I think maybe, Josiah, that if we Christians here in the U.S. Uh, willingly take on an ethic of suffering in imitation, not only of the early church, but in imitation of these heroes and confessors and martyrs of the faith in our own time, then the people who get sick and tired of the lies in this society will be drawn. They'll want to know what we have that makes our lives so compelling, that gives us hope. And that is where I get my hope. I'm not optimistic. I, I like to tell people, I think there's a difference between optimism and hope, at least for Christians. An optimist thinks everything is going to work out uh, well, no matter what. I don't think that's going to happen, at least not in the short term. But someone who has hope, at least a Christian does, knows that uh, if he is willing to suffer anything, even death, for the sake of Christ, that God will use that in some way for the good. That's how these people were in the former Soviet bloc. None of them that I talked to thought they were ever going to live to see the end of communism. 
they did, but they were willing to make those sacrifices just because it was the right thing to do. And they could not live with themselves if they bowed the, bent the knee or burned the pinch of uh, incense to Caesar, the communist Caesar, just to have an easy life. We've got to be that way too. Yeah. So this actually is something that interested me as I uh, have read a little bit more and learned a little bit more about some of the anti-communist dissidents that you're right. They almost uh, to a person did not think that their actions were going to lead to the uh, end of communism or dictatorial rule uh, in any, you know, in the foreseeable future in their lifetime, mm-hmm. like, like, like else. And I, I did kind of have, uh, you know, I started to wonder when you read about some of these stories, like, uh, there's something kind of little, it could be a little hard to understand about being a dissident, right? In, in those circumstances. It's, it's not like people in the French resistance, right? Or whatever, where you, ex, you know, you're, you're fighting because uh, you expect that sooner or later, you know, the, the U.S. Marines are going to come over and liberate you and right. win. And to you know to be honest in terms of uh, any sort of practical considerations it doesn't it doesn't make a lot of sense right you know to uh, not go along because not only are you you know giving up uh, potentially a lot of stuff for your you know you're bringing a lot of hardship on yourself you're bringing a lot of hardship on uh, your family on other colleagues um and maybe you know if you thought well this is what's necessary to you know uh, to end communism or end whatever the horrible thing is, that would be one thing. But if, you know, people didn't even believe that. So, what, you know, what's motivating people to, to, to do that, right? Is, do you understand what I'm saying? Oh, I, I do understand. And, and I think this is why somebody told me, I forget which one of the dissidents it was, said, you have to understand that most people weren't like us. Most people conformed because it was really hard to be a dissident. It was really, really hard. And, uh, you know, one of the reasons people hate, ordinary people hated dissidents was because the fact of their dissent uh, reminded ordinary people that they themselves were cowards, you know? So you have to be prepared to take all that on. And I, you know, as Christians, I can see why they would do that because they had this supernatural hope, you know, this, this confidence that even no matter what they suffered, that uh, God would reward them, if not in this life, then in the next. But what I find so hard to wrap my mind around is the courage of someone like Václav Havel, who did not have the comfort of faith or the you know the faith to be his guide. He just was, and all these people in his circle in Prague, they just did it because it was the right thing to do because they did not want to live on their knees. And I, I have mad respect for that. Um, but I I think that, you know, it, it's just really, really hard to to get your mind around it if uh, if you don't have some transcendent grounding, some deep grounding and a commitment to truth. Now, for Christians, that, of course, that truth is Jesus Christ. But people like Václav Havel, and I think we'll see dissidents like this emerge in our own country uh, from the uh, from among the seculars. It's a matter of personal courage, and we'll see so many Christians, people that 
we look at today and imagine that they would be the ones who would stand withstand anything, we're going to see them capitulate too. And they'll find all kinds of reasons to rationalize it. Uh, because that's what that was the experience of the church in in the Eastern Bloc. Isn't isn't there sort of a tension? And I'm not necessarily saying this that there's a tension in your own thinking, but isn't there sort of a I guess maybe a tension, uh, if you want to call it, on the religious right? But Christians in America, particularly of the conservative bent, that you know I can think as recently as say the George W. Bush years, where it, there appeared to be sort of the religious right is sort of being ascendant. And that there was there was a path to being part of the government, part of the governance. And, and that's awfully tempting, right? It's awfully tempting to think that America is this exceptional place and it's a Christian nation. And we just need to sort of reassert ourselves back into that position of governance. But what I'm hearing from you is, is much more of accepting the except the suffering's coming rather than being nostalgic for let's, let's get the good old days back where the, you know, the, the Christians are running the show. How, how receptive are, you know, sort of common people, common Christians that are maybe not that involved in politics. How receptive are they to this line of thinking? Uh, not, not very receptive. I mean, I, in the Benedict option, I talked about this, that book came out in 2017 and even today, three years later, I still hear people saying, well, I don't think the Christian should head for the hills. I, I'm against the Benedict option. And I'll tell them, wait, that's not what the book actually says. Did you read the book? Well, no. But, you know, and, and it turns out that they seem to have this deep fear that uh, fear of reading the book because they think that I'm, I, I think that they believe I might be right about this, that the show really is uh, over for Christians in terms of, uh, of ruling the society. And I, I look, I wish it weren't true, but we have to be realistic here. I don't think there's any, anything to be gained from false nostalgia or thinking that, you know, we could just turn the clock back. If we gain political power, get the right judges on the bench. Um, that's false. And the, to the extent that Christian leaders and uh, Christian laity have believed that, uh, we've, we've hurt ourselves by not paying attention to the foundations of our faith. I, I do believe that Christians should stay politically active because these things do matter. The common good matters. Uh, you should stay active in politics, if only to protect religious liberty, to protect, that is, the right of our institutions, our churches and our schools and so forth, to do what they're supposed to do. But I, I think that if you look at what's happening to the young, the the Gen, Gen Z and the millennials, how they're falling away from the faith. We of the older generations have not made the faith plausible to them or attractive to them uh, in, these, in this post-Christian situation. And we don't have all the time in the world to do it. I know that so many Christians, older Christians, Christians my age, think that, oh, if we just you know, wait till they get older and settle down, then they're going to come back to church. Not happening. It's just not happening. And uh, I, I do sound alarmist to a lot of people because I think it's alarming what's actually happening. But I also feel sort of like Flannery O'Connor, who said, when people are deaf, you have to shout. And uh, we, if you go back and read the history of the 4th century, 4th century Rome, there's a um, 
great book called the, the Final Pagan Generation by a historian named Edward Watts, who goes back and just tells the story of what it was like to be a believing pagan in the fourth century. Uh, the last pagans still thought that paganism was going to last forever, but in fact, it was falling apart right under their feet. I think the same thing is happening with Christianity right now. And I think that uh, Christians, if we're going to save anything uh, for the future, and we have to wake up and take action, not just political action, not even primarily political action. Uh, Pope Benedict the Sixteenth, you know, he's like the second Benedict of the Benedict option. I admire almost no one more than than he. Uh, his personal secretary came to a, a an event I had in Rome when the Italian version of the Benedict Option came out. Uh, it was on September 11th, 2018, and uh, Archbishop Gainsfine, Benedict's private secretary, gave a speech in which he said, this book is right on. This is what we need to do. I think Benedict XVI was prophetic in that way, and uh, I, I really hope that both my recent books, Benedict Option and Live Not By Lies, lights a fire under my own people, Christians, and makes us realize that we don't have all the time in the world. All right. So I noticed that you, uh, in your uh, Twitter feed, it looks like you are endorsing a, a candidate for president from the American Solidarity Party. What is the American Solidarity Party? It's a small party that is basically the American version of a classical European Christian Democratic Party. Uh, they are pro-life. Um, they a lot of what you would call you could call so Catholic social teaching. They believe in. They believe in subsidiarity. Um, they believe the government should uh, economically it should structure the economy to support families and so forth. They're against the death penalty, um, and they. They really stand for the kind of things that I believe in, that I've never had anybody to vote for in the past. I'm a conservative. I almost always vote Republican, but I haven't voted in a presidential race since uh, 2004 because I've been so frustrated with all with both parties. And I, I, as a pro-lifer, I just can't vote for the Democrats. But man, the Republicans just wear me out. And uh, I was hoping that I didn't vote for Trump or for Hillary Clinton, didn't vote in that election. But uh, I was hoping that Trump might be a more populist and do something for working people. It didn't really work out that way. So I was planning to skip this election, too. Of course, it's easy for me to do because I live in Louisiana, safely red state. Uh, and if I was in a purple state, I'd probably feel differently. But when I saw in Louisiana that the American Solidarity Party was on the ballot uh, this year for me, I went to check out their platform and I was like, man, this is the first time I'll actually be able to cast a vote that's a vote in favor of something as a civic affirmation instead of slouching into the voting booth in a state of civic despair to vote for the uh, lesser of two evils. So, you know, some people say I'm throwing the vote away. I don't think so. Uh, Trump is going to win my state. But uh, I, I feel like I want to at least have the experience for once in my lifetime of casting a vote for somebody. So Bigfoot's been in the news. Now, I, I don't know. There's there's not really any news for Bigfoot. But um, what, do, what do you think about Bigfoot? <laughs> <laughs> Man, that's why they bring the big bucks, Josiah. You're incisive. I'm, I, I, I'll tell you, man. I, I'm a believer in Bigfoot, and I have been since I was a kid. I, I was, I was a very imaginative little boy, and I remember being at the TGNY. That was a, a, 
a chain, a small chain, and maybe it was a southern chain of five and dime stores. Back in the 70s, I, I bought a, uh, a little book called Sasquatch. You know, and I, I remember reading that thing on the school bus over and over like it was sacred scripture. And I became convinced that there was Sasquatch everywhere. He was hiding in the woods because I grew up out in the country in Louisiana, right? And I can remember my dad would take me hunting and I was, I couldn't focus on the deer because I was just waiting for Sasquatch to jump out and grab me. But uh, I, <laughs> so it, it's funny, my kids laugh at me so so hard. I, I still have that little paperback book and I can't even look at it without getting a chill down my spine because it just reminds me of the terror of the unknown living out in the woods. And I, I could not wait to become an adult so I could move to the city where you could see the Sasquatch coming. <laughs> so, so man, I, I, and that was a great thing. When I moved to Dallas a few years ago with my, with my wife, um, I, uh, I was like, the one good thing about living in Texas is there are plains here, and you can see that there's no big trees. It's hard for Bigfoot to hide. <laughs> He's not going to get you. You know, so there, there is, a, there's a talk show host, Michael Medved. Oh, yeah. And he does uh, one day a month when there's a full moon, all three hours, he does what's called Conspiracy Day, where people will call in to talk about all sorts of, uh, you know, 9-11 was an inside job. The moon landing was fake. Roswell, all sorts of stuff. And he always shoot like wh- whatever it is, he always shoots it down, except for Bigfoot. He actually believes <laughs> that there is likely to be some sort of uh, astropithecus in the Pacific Northwest. So so you're in uh, you're in uh, August company, I guess I would. But but he lives in the Pacific Northwest. That's the thing I don't get. I've heard that he's a he's a Bigfoot truther, as am I. But why would he live there? You yeah, well, he does live in. The, I think he still lives in the city, though. So um, well, maybe. But you know, they they, they they're crafty. Bigfoot, <laughs> the big feet, Bigfoot, Sasquatches. They're crafty. They want you to think that they're not going to get you in the city. But how do we know? How do we know for sure that they're not just lying in wait? That's true, especially I uh, see you lives in Seattle. They had uh, Chaz there, the autonomous zone. There are no police to protect you from Bigfoot. Uh, uh, do you think Sasquatch is Antifa? Actually, to challenge one of the things you said, I, I just watched the great movie with Sam Elliott of the man who killed Hitler, then the Bigfoot. Um, and in that movie, Sam Elliott tells us that it's actually a misnomer that his feet are not big. <laughs> okay. What? All right. <laughs> Are you making some kind of oblique reference to his sexuality or his? No, no, no. The actual Bigfoot doesn't actually. That's have what's feet. so scary about Bigfoot that that his feet are not the only thing that's big about him. <laughs> He's supposedly a, a large, a large creature. Okay. Well, on- <laughs> no, no, no. This was just getting fun. Maybe it's <laughs> like my next book will be "Live Not by Big Feet." That's like, yes. Fun. This is gonna yeah. This is gonna be the third book in the trilogy. Benedict Hopkins, <laughs> "Live Not by Lies," and what you know, Bigfoot. <laughs> well, can can I be serious for just a second? Somebody has said to me, "said this really needs to be a trilogy," and I thought, well, if I if I do another book, I think probably the thing I would want to focus on is what are the lessons for us from. Chinese Christians today, Christians who are having to live out the faith under this uh, total surveillance system, right? Because I think that's coming for us. And uh, I think that I I didn't focus on Chinese, uh, the experience of Chinese communism, of Christians under Chinese communism, uh, mostly because I've only met 
in this country, people who survived Soviet communism, and it was easier to get over there and interview these people. I, I'm sure I'm not going to be able to get into the People's Republic of China, but there are ways to find out about the Chinese uh, church experience, contemporary experience. And I think we need to start watching what our, our Christian brothers and sisters over there are going through because they're going to have really practical advice that's going to help us in the decades to come. I think that's good. The the other the other thing that occurred to me is, you know, if your previous historical examples were, you know, the fall of Rome uh, and Eastern communism, I, I think uh, the Coptic Christians in Egypt, basically, you know, the, the Christians of the Middle East in general, uh, this is an amazing story there. Uh, I don't know how much of that, lessons from that are applicable to 21st century America, but, uh, you know, that definitely a lot. They, they, they've, they've been, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't 70 years as with communism, you know, they've been dealing with. Demi Toot since the 700s. Yeah. 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 Well, um, it's, we can maybe end on this note. This is really important. Uh, a couple of years ago, I was in contact with a woman, an American woman, who does a lot of work in Washington lobbying and things on behalf of the persecuted church. And she said that she had recently gotten an email from a Christian. I think it was in Egypt. It was definitely one of the Islamic countries. And the the Christian over there said, I'm praying a lot for you, my brothers and sisters in America. And the Washington woman said, well, thanks, but why? And they, the, the Egyptian Christian said, because you have it so easy. And uh, if you're not persecuted like we are, it's easy for you to forget what it means to be a Christian. And we see that spiritual danger rampant in America. And I, I think that reading Live Not By Lies, you definitely get the same feeling from talking to the Christians of Eastern Europe. And not only about what the way we're living, but their own countries. Uh, I was so shocked in Poland. I'm someone who grew up under you know, the era of John Paul II. And Poland was always the bulwark of Christian faith and a godless continent. To go over to Poland now and to talk to young practicing Catholics in their 20s, Every single one of them told me that, yeah, within 10, maybe 20 years, Poland is going to go the same way as Ireland and be faithless. I mean, that, that was a real shock for me. So they're not standing, sitting there on it from a position of looking down on us. Uh, they're just because they're trying to figure out how to live through this themselves, uh, themselves and keep the faith. But they have experiences that they can draw on to help themselves and that we can draw on here in our society. Our guest today has been... Rod Dreher, the book, Live Not By Lies, available now. Uh, thank you very much for joining us. It's great to be here. 